as soon as I was given that recorder, a light went on. I knew I wanted to write music, create music, create my own music, as well as just play it. Hello and welcome to Confessions. My name's Giles Fraser, and this is the podcast where we talk to interesting and well-known people and try and drill down into what they're all about and uh, where their values come from and to have a discussion about their beliefs. And I'm delighted, really, really delighted to have with me today uh, the composer Sir James Macmillan, um, who is a bit of a hero of mine. So if this interview is a little bit fawning, I apologise just right from the start. Um, James, how we normally structure this is we um, talk first of all a little bit about your your family background and um, where you come from and 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 some of the stuff that you picked up um, as a child. Mm-hmm. So perhaps you might say something about that. Yes, well, I'm from the west of Scotland. I noticed you had another uh, Scottish West Coast Catholic on recently, Helena Kennedy, and what she was saying reminded me very much of my background as well. Uh, it's a small minority community in the west of Scotland. Um, she was Glasgow, but I, I'm from Ayrshire, it's more rural. My grandfather was a coal miner and worked all his life under the under the ground, but loved music and uh, lived for music. He, he played a euphonium in a colliery band. He sang in the local church choir. He got me my first cornet and took me to my first band practices. So the brass band world was very big in, in those kind of communities, both north and south of the border. Uh, and so that's how I began. That's how I began music, and that was my background, the religious background, the social background, very much a working-class uh Catholic background, uh, even the po- political background as well, is, is probably known to many through encounters with the likes of Helena Kennedy, who spoke very well about about what that was like and and where her values came from. And um, I, I think it's probably worth saying now that your your father passed away yesterday. Yes, and, that's uh, right. And so, thank you for coming in and, and talking about this. And so, but would you say a little bit about? you know, your dad. Yes, exactly. Um, well, my dad was, we, he was 89 and he we expected this for a while. And uh, when I finally heard, I actually just got a phone call 10 minutes before a rehearsal with the London Philharmonic Orchestra yesterday. And I thought, well, what do I do? Uh, no one else can take this rehearsal. So I just powered through. And uh, you can't really put it out of your mind. But um, I suppose I was prepared. I saw him at the weekend. I knew it might be the last time. And um, it, it turned out to be that way. But I think he was holding on uh, just to see me and, and my daughter, who, were, who, were down, who was down with me. And uh, <clears throat> he, he was a great influence on, on my life as well. Um, I mean, uh, I, I look to both my grandfather that I, I mentioned, but also my dad, um, uh, as kind of models for being a, being fathers. Uh, there, there were great fathers and, and grandfathers, of course, and uh, <clears throat> um, great enablers. They, they 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 gave space to the beloved that is the the mother, the wife, uh, to build a nest, a nest of love, for their children. What did he do? My dad was a carpenter. Okay. So very different from me in that sense. He worked with his hands. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, had a, a, a sort of hard uh, physical life, 
physical physical work all his life. Made things. I, the house was full of wonderful little things that he'd made, furniture and little toys, wooden toys. I remember he used to make for make for me and my brother and sister what we called bogies, little carts with wheels and and just primitive things. It was great things, little train sets and um, <clears throat> so there was. I suppose looking back at it, there was a kind of connection in the the way that he took great pride in the things that he made. There was an artisan's pride about the not just the functionality, but the beauty and the um, uh, the kind of fun that he gave to his children through the things he made. And if there's a, an analogy at all with composition, it might be that I take a, a pride in in the artisan aspect of writing music as well as the artistic. Craft. Uh, yeah, the craft is fundamentally important for a composer. And maybe I did get something from my dad. I was rubbish at woodwork at school, and he was <laughs> he was always he was always uh, disappointed in that. But. Uh, he, he was and there was music of, in the house. Yes, um, my grandfather—that's my uh, maternal uh, grandfather. Uh, my mum's dad w- was was really the musical influence, and he had tried to uh, cajole my mother to be a musician, and she did follow it to an extent, but she, her heart wasn't really in it. So when I came along, he was delighted. And my father, although he didn't read music, my earliest memories in the house was of my father playing the piano, uh, not my mum. And it was all it was little folk tunes and, uh, and and hymns, Catholic hymns, and so on. It was waking us up on a Saturday morning uh, when he when he had a day off work, and uh, it was a wonder, wonderful thing. He played by ear. He he loved music as well, and and he he loved my life's involvement in music. And the church, you've just referenced the, the, the fact that you come from a Catholic family. That was mm. a big part of your upbringing? Very much so. Um, devout Catholic parents and, and uh, grandparents and, and the wider the wider community it revolved around the local parish uh, and, and the schools. Uh, uh, so I, I was immersed in that. Um, I... I some of the first musical things I did was were for was for the liturgy and just being pressed into service to play for the school masses and uh, classroom devotions and so on. I was taught by nuns uh, of the Sisters of the Sacred Heart and and the Blessed Virgin Mary, if that's the right title. Um, and and they they were strict, but by the sixties and seventies things were changing, and uh, I always remember them as as humane, and I have great memories of both the 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 nuns who taught me and and others. You 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 um, famously um, spoke uh, a number of years back about um, sectarianism in Scotland mm. and. Uh, and you sort of called it out in a way that it it was sort of unfashionable to talk about the the, the mm. and you got a bit of stick for that, didn't you? Yes, I, I remember. It's twenty years ago now. Is that really right? Yeah, okay. uh, and it wasn't a pleasant time. And uh, but I'm aware uh, that there's a, there are a wide range of opinions on it, and it's certainly divided opinion. You're right. At the time, there were those who said, "Yes, this is an issue that needs to be addressed. Why haven't we done it until now?" And there were others who perhaps felt there was a, an accusatory finger pointed at them and I, I hope that wasn't the case in my, in my part, uh, were, were defensive and said, no, there isn't a problem. And you can see that in, in other debates about uh, minority communities. Was, was there a, did, you, did you feel a sort of anti-Catholicism uh, around when you were growing up? Yes, I think so. I think it's fa- <coughs> fair to say that. And whether that is anecdotal or can be proved, uh, that, that's, that's the, the, the dividing line in the debate. But certainly uh, everyone in my 
my family and in the, with the kids I grew up with were aware of what, what it meant to be a slightly beleaguered and perhaps inward-looking community uh, in a Scotland that had forgotten about its Catholic past. And indeed, in many ways, we were children or certainly grandchildren, great-grandchildren of immigrants, mainly, mainly the Irish, who'd come to the west of Scotland. So we had that immigrants' uh, tension in the wider community. Um, whether it's still there, I'll leave it to the experts uh, to, to get on with it. It's still there in Old Firm Derby, isn't it? I well, mean, you know, you're a Celtic <laughs> fan, aren't you? That's right. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that that's part and partial of it. And sometimes it can come down to banter. And those who try to say it's not a serious problem would, would, would claim that the ban- that's all it is, banter. And, well, we'll see. I... Mean, uh, I uh, it's not a debate I want to get involved in anymore. As you know, yeah, things yeah. have moved on in Scotland to other forms of sectarianism um, that are more political and to do with secession and so on. So, But at one time, at the, when I was making the speech, Scotland had just uh, got its new parliament and there was a real opportunity to raise issues that had lain under the carpet for so, for so long. And I think there was an opportunity just to start experimenting with uh, hidden uh, hidden ideas and uh, hidden debates these are things that catholics talked about amongst themselves all the time but, but would, has would nationalism been... does this sort of rise of the snp and all of that sort of stuff does has that sort of uh, replaced um, that uh, or, or, or well, is it ex- uh, exacerbated it's, it's certainly replaced it in in the public imagination and in the public debate and the reason i say another form of sectarianism uh, slightly f- uh, facetious perhaps but uh, th- there is a kind of tribal divide over that issue now uh, unfortunately um and for a while, the SNP, it's changed now, of course, but for a while they did play the orange card in, in Scotland, but um, they they realised that that wasn't going to get them anywhere, and they've actually been trying to woo the Catholic community quite successfully under Alex Salmond to come round to the secessionist side. And, um, so it's an interesting... An interesting thing to observe: uh, the, the, the 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 religious thing is there in the background, but it's it's transmogrifying into new dimensions in Scottish politics and culture. Now, one of the things some people don't know about you, um, uh, I mean, some people know you're a, I might call you a theologian as well as a musician. I mean, you may, I don't know if you'll you'll accept that or not. Um, and uh, a theologian of the church and and and. Uh, a Roman Catholic, but you also had a time when you were younger, when you were a communist, or there was some membership of the Communist Party. Is that correct? It is, yes. And I've written about this. I was very young when when this happened, um, but you know, as you can imagine from the community I've discussed, a working class, quite poor community actually in in Scotland in the nineteen sixties. Uh, but the Catholics were v- profoundly pro-labour. I, 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 my grandfather was a member of the National Union of Mine Workers and in the Labour Party, and my my, my uncle became a, a Labour councillor. So there was there was a, a commitment to the Labour movement and indeed the Labour Party. I I discovered this other aspect of of Labourism, which was uh, even was more extreme, and um, I. I, I uh, as a hot-headed teenage rebel, joined the Young Communist League when I was 14. It's 
perhaps I was prematurely interested in politics. And uh, but it does it did cause pain. Uh, my grandfather especially was very upset. He'd spent um, his working life fighting against Marxists in the National Union of Mine Workers and in the labour movement generally. There was always that that strife. And and he looked at me, and I seemed to be taking the the wrong side. And I do regret that looking back back on it. My mum and dad actually found it more funny than anything else. They were they were more at ease with it, I suppose. They didn't necessarily agree with me. Uh, but in retrospect, it's uh, I do regret it. Uh, I, I wish I'd never joined the Communist Party. I think even although I was a teenager, uh, I would hate to think I would have given any sucker at all to peddlers of one of the uh, the, the, the worst ideologies that this, this world, indeed this continent, this history has seen. So I, I have rejected that. Um, it's not that I've become the exact opposite of it. I'm just a, a bit of a sort of floating uh, undecided. You, would you call yourself a lefty now? Or? Um I think if I had to claim myself uh, that I was a lefty, a lot of left-wingers, genuine left-wingers, would be very annoyed. <laughs> uh, I don't have that purchase on it anymore. I, I've been on a journey uh, away fr- from the left in some ways, um, uh, but it doesn't mean going to the right. I genuinely, at one point, I was quite happy to call myself a centrist, although that that means something quite different nowadays. Uh, but. But I, I, in the rejection of that extremism, uh, I, I, uh, the extremism of Marxism, the extremism of communism, I suppose I've cleaved to uh, a, a moderation in, in politics, and I'm quite happy with that. Um, so we're going to listen to a couple of pieces of of music from you. And uh, the first one I want to play, which um, I've known a little bit and which I love, um, which does contain a sense of... Uh, the importance of justice and a concern for the poor, um, which I imagine was part of what animated the young James Millen and and I imagine is now carried by Catholicism and by faith. Um, and here, if we can listen to this a little bit, can we listen to just the opening bit of Give Me Justice? Of music. You know, I wrote that piece of music as a piece of congregational music initially. It was sung by the congregations in, in some of the churches that I was involved in about probably 10 or 15 years ago. I have a commitment to music in the community and the music in the, in the, in the church community, of course, are the, are, are the assembly at the altar of God. And uh, it's always preyed in my mind about what what is it that we could be doing? What is it that we could be? What kind of music should the assembly sing to uh, to sing their prayers? Uh, it's something that the Catholic Church has grappled with since Vatican II. Not entirely the, successfully. Not entirely successful at all. And and there's great uh, there's a kind of little culture war going on in the church about about that. Um, but you know, it's early days, I suppose. Uh, but um, it, it's something that I thought about a lot. How could we sing our prayers in the vernacular? And this was an attempt to do that to try to get those people along with me sing, sing something simple. Uh, and uh, but but you managed to get simple simple without being trite. So there's so much there's so much congregational music, which just seems to be sort of 
I don't know, popular ditties that are sort of like, they're not very sophisticated. And you can actually have something that's, that's as it were, has an interesting, complicated rhythm to it or uh, without uh, and it also be simple as well yes I mean it's it's an ongoing struggle really to try to find that kind of music Uh, my solution or or my inclination at least is that there is something in the tradition traditions of Catholicism and the the other churches that uh, can point us in the right direction and um, chant is very important not just Gregorian chant but I think that uh, there's a kind of template or a model there that we can uh, take from and, and build on uh, in the vernacular. Uh, the Anglicans have been doing that for 400 years, so um, why can't we? And and there's also, uh, the, the, of course, there's the influence of folk music in congregational in congregational praise as well. How can that be uh, adjusted and um, reworked? Well, why does that? Why is it sort of sort of worked? I mean, the Anglican Church has many of. You know, I'm an Anglican priest. The Anglican Church has many of its problems, but there is a sort of strong choral tradition, strong tradition of singing and so forth. Sometimes you go to Roman churches and there isn't quite that, is there? What's the history of that? Why has that come about? Well, I mean, the Anglican Church has kept the tradition alive, especially in in, in England. Um, there's been more money to... Uh, uh, keep the foundations alive. Keep the co- the colleges going and the and the c- uh, cathedral choirs, the choir schools. Uh, so it's it's partly uh, economic and right. uh, social. Uh, uh, the Catholic Church, I suppose. Uh, uh, it, it, as I've already indicated, it sometimes can be seen as an immigrants' church and and a poorer community, perhaps, that haven't been able to keep those foundations going. Um, There are some wonderful places in the church in in this country where the the, the Catholic Church does try to keep alive the choral tradition, Westminster Cathedral, for example, and some of the other cathedrals. But at parish level, I think that's where we have our problems about the kind of ordinary, simple music that could be used, especially in, in the wake of the convulsions of Vatican II when some might might say the the baby was thrown out with the bathwater and uh, the problem really was there's not no problem with Vatican II I'm, uh, I'm glad it happened but the the strange and unnerving thing about it was that it happened in the 60s and was much a part of the zeitgeist as anything else and there's a kind of um, so it got muddled up with all got, of that 60s revolutionary with, sort of uh, dem- the dem- democratization of the church, church the, the sense of diversity and so on that, that, are, that is important but it, it was sometimes played with a very heavy hand and it meant that um, many of the more committed younger uh, spirit of Vatican II Catholics decided that the old ways were not working and should be abandoned and that the new ways were best there's almost a kind of Khmer Rouge um, uh, virgin territory, let's start at the beginning and forget about the past kind of feeling. So, I mean, it's, it's, the Catholic Church in the 60s is not the first church or ecclesial community that has had its uh, cultural revolutions, um, and certainly not, not its first time we've had cultural convulsions in, in the church. Are you a theological conservative? Would you say? Um, some might say that. I, I, I'm surprised. I was surprised that your description of me as a theologian earlier. Uh, I, 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 
I wouldn't describe myself as that. However, I love being around theologians. There's something about the theological mind, especially when the theologians turn their attention to the arts, that I love hearing about. I love to hear what people at like Jeremy Begbie, for example, uh, but many others um, have to say about the impact of uh, the arts in in, in our spiritual lives and how the churches can engage with that. that That's why I'm drawn to theology, I suppose. It's certainly drawn to theologians. I don't know if it makes me a conservative. Uh, um, it's not for me to say. Um, <clears throat> I mean, it, to some people, any Catholic is a, is a theological conservative, but that's only half the, the reason story. I call you a The reason I call you a theologian, and I think sometimes musicians are the great theologians, is that they have a capacity to describe something about God and the nature of God, that those of us who, who use words to try and do that are often... Uh, it, it seems to me that music's better to do it than, than words. Well, I mean, it's interesting that uh, there are two composers uh, in history um, that are talked about as being theologians. One is J.S. Bach. The other is Olivier Messiaen, who died about 20 years ago, uh, one Lutheran, one Catholic. And both of them understood uh, the, the roots of, of our culture and indeed um, served the liturgy. Uh, but they, they brought to the table, especially Messiaen in our own time, they brought to modernity, the idea that the arts can still be infused by the search for the sacred. And that was a great inspiration to me. I didn't need to look to the deep past. I did, of course, look to J.S. Bach and the other great contrapuntalists who wrote for the church. But the fact that there was someone like Olivier Messiaen, but many others in our time who have kept alive this flame that the sacred is vital for our time and when you begin to think about it and you look at modern music let's say the music of the 20th century and now 21st century some of the most important figures in modern musical history were profoundly religious men and women um uh, not just spiritual in the vaguest sense, but Stravinsky was a believer. He set the Psalms, he set the Mass, he wrote little prayers. He he fell in love with the the Western Church uh, and kept alive his Orthodox um, beliefs and and culture. Uh, that other great polar figure of early modernism, Schoenberg, reconverted to a practicing Judaism after he left Germany in the 1930s. And his later work, you know, two of the greater great figures of modern music, if you like. Schoenberg was writing music that was infused with his Jewish culture and indeed Jewish theology right up until he died. And then came Messiaen, uh, who would have predicted that, a teacher of Boulez and Stockhausen, right at the heart of second-wave modernism, but a profoundly Catholic figure, a theological conservative, some might say. Uh, and then all these other composers who came out uh, from behind the Iron Curtain in the wake of... Uh, Communism collapsing, post-Shostakovich modernists like Schnitke, Gubaidolina, still living, uh, Ustvolskaya, uh, Arvo Pert, of course, uh, Cancelli, uh, all uh, profoundly religious people, Goretzky in Poland. Um, far from the theological conservatives being uh, 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 out, out, of the, out of the picture, you, you could argue that uh, that search for the sacred is at the heart of what modern music is all about. It's there in the work of the great composers of our time. I, I know you're, um, you've been a, a fan of 
Benedict the Sixteenth, and um, one of the things that I've I took from him was a um, uh, he he pointed me towards a theologian called von Balthasar, uh, and von Balthasar has got this fascinating idea that what went wrong with the Enlightenment or whatever is that the good, the true, and the beautiful got all pulled apart in different directions mm. and that they had to sort of establish themselves in their own terms. Kant wrote one book on the good, one book on the true, one book on the beautiful. And that actually one of the things that's terribly important is that we c come to see that the good, the true, and the beautiful are actually all aspects of the same thing, mm. that they're not to be pulled apart. And that's something that musicians actually can do, that, they, that there is, and I know this sounds might sound... I'm putting this to you, but there's a moral quality. There's a quality about truth to music as well as an aesthetic phenomenon. I think that's right. And this maybe goes back to your point about um, music being able to reach the soul in maybe not a better way, but in a very different way to words. Uh, and, and it's also one of the reasons that why, why a discursive music like classical music can be so baffling in our time, because it's an art form that exists beyond words and images. We know that this... Uh, essentially abstract form of music speaks directly to the human heart. It causes these convulsions in the human soul. But why is this, Why is it doing that? There are no words being used, and sometimes there's, there's no words at all in classical music. Um, and, and sometimes there's no images involved, but yet this language of music uh, speaks to us in a way that um, can be transformative. It can change our perspectives in life. It can change our perspectives on the relationships we have. It can bring us joy. It can allow us to deal with the profoundest tragedies. Um, you're right, music can, in a sense, I, I hesitate to word preach, uh, but speak to people uh, in beyond words and images. And maybe it's because a discursive form like classical music, um, whether it's spiritual or intellectual, I don't know whether these words are, are really adequate, but they, they do point to something in our shared humanity that um, makes us more or suggests that we are more than just the sum of our parts, that there is more to this life than just these arms and legs and uh, and mouths and, I mean, and ears. That it's like music can make... Was it Elliot or Merton or whatever? They said talked about raids on the unspeakable, you know. And there's something you can't speak about about the nature of God, and so that musicians, that composers, are able to articulate in a way that words seem very earthbound. Mm. Yes, I th I think, uh, or I've come to the conclusion uh, that music does open a window onto the divine. Uh, and that there is an umbilical relationship between the sense of the sacred and what music does. Um, there's a connection there, a connection between heaven and earth, perhaps, and that um, um, all, all music is spiritual. It's not just sacred music, it's not just uh, liturgical music or even holy music. I think there is something sacred in the nature of music itself. And I know that through speaking to my fellow music lovers who are not necessarily religious, not necessarily conventionally religious in, in the way that we might be, perhaps, but who use the term 
spiritual a lot uh, to describe the impact that that music has on their lives and when they do that they're acknowledging a truth about music that it, it is this transformative mysterious thing that gets into the very crevices of the soul and uh, I think that points towards God. And the act of uh, the act of composing uh, that that must be very close to a sort of prayerful type of um, when you do it, those two things must be quite adjacent to each other, I imagine. I think so. Uh, and I'm not the first composer or musician to to acknowledge that. I think there's something even in the the mind games that John Cage played uh, with his audience and indeed with the culture that... Um, that suggested we should look at silence again. You know, look at silence, not just in the way that we we listen to music, but perhaps in that silence. Uh, I always thought that was a bit tricksy, that piece. I know what you mean. Uh, uh, but the, but it goes beyond that, and that there are si- silence is so important to m- music, not just John Cage. Um, the, the great con- contrapuntalists in the past used silence uh, as silent tones almost. Um, they knew that there would be moments moments of reflection where the words and the music stopped and there would be this sense of vacuum uh, where the listener, indeed the worshipper, is left with time, silent time to reflect on what they've just heard. In fact, Schnitke, uh, that other great philosopher figure, the Russian composer who also died about 20 years ago, used the term silent tones uh, in regard to his music and he would actually write silences into the fabric of his scores uh, for them to be contemplated uh, on equal terms with the notes. So Cage was on to something. And um, I think there is something about the way that we listen to music that is analogous with the way that we contemplate, the way that we pray, in fact. Uh, and I certainly, certainly wouldn't be the first person to have suggested there's an Sometimes analogy. Sometimes when there. I listen to your music, it gets very, it gets very, very quiet. Some it's a very, and I'm straining to hear it. I mean, maybe this is because I'm hearing it on my headphones, but, but I'm straining to hear it. And there are times when I go, has it stopped? <laughs> has it not? And I'm, and I'm really straining to listen. Yeah. And I imagine that's sort of deliberate, that it's sort of, it, it puts you in a position of, of, you know, what, what can I hear? What can I hear? It, it, it's it's a natural consequence of writing for uh, for the live acoustic and and for that reason, it's, I'm not the only composer, but I, I know I know many I know m- much in classical repertoire that is difficult to broadcast. I mean, Radio 3 has this problem all the time. There are silences and pauses that um, uh, cause convulsions in, in Broadcasting House because they, they think they think the, the, <laughs> the thing has closed down. And, a submarine's uh, going isn't to... Isn't, isn't, isn't there... If, if Radio 4 goes silent for a bit and a nuclear submarine decides it's London's been attacked or yeah. something... <laughs> yeah, well, in, with Radio 3, it's like that in spades. And uh, But, you know, I, I'm aware that um, the best way to hear music, any music is in the live uh, situation and and that listeners who are who are drawn into the, the, the obedience of listening to music and there is an obedience, oh, I think that's, that's something something that um, Rowan, Wick, uh, Rowan Williams talked about, the obedience of listening the obedience of listening to music uh, where we have to uh, acknowledge there's a, 
uh, an authority in that music. Again, there's an analogy there. We fall silent before God, but perhaps we have to fall silent before the performance as well. And if that performance is very quiet, we go with the the, the, the near silences. We're drawn into those near silences uh, because it's in those near silences that we encounter something very special and indeed, indeed something perhaps even numinous. There is an obedience to being uh, in the audience, isn't there? I mean, there's an obedience to the time that, you know, you give it, have to give it time, that time to be there. You have to give it your attention. That's what you're promising. You're promising a form of obedience. That's right. There's an element of sacrifice, self-sacrifice in that obedience. You sacrifice your time. Um, and it's it's very difficult to put time aside for apparent... Uh, apparent um, nothingness of, of, of listening to music we all have busy lives yeah. uh, can, can I afford that are time? you wasting your time wasting by listening time. to like Absolutely. there's nothing else happening <laughs> but in, in that obedience of listening in that sacrifice of listening I think we are changed uh, or we at least open ourselves up to the possibility of being changed uh, certainly I've, I, I've, I've followed some very interesting lines of thought in Rowan Williams about that uh, who is of course a musician who is of course a poet and understands the analogies between the arts and religion and the power, the power, the spiritual power of poetry and music I mean it's completely different to going around a gallery I mean I know some of my... Uh some of my younger kids can go around the gallery in about, you know, 15 seconds, you know, they just pass by a picture, pass by a picture. And so, you know, the picture doesn't demand obedience in the same way that um, listening to a concert will, will demand obedience. It makes you sit and That's right. pay attention. And, and, and your fellow audience members will, will also dem demand your obedience and yes. indeed silence. Uh, yes. uh, and that, that can be an issue as well, you know, people rustling about and coughing. That, that causes it causes problems for everyone else. And you, you, you're, made, you're made to feel... Uh, Are you a shusher in the cinema? I, I'm not, but I'm glad when others do it. OK. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, we talked a bit about silence. Now I want to talk about a, another piece of music we play, um, which uh, is not silent at all, which is the Tuis Petrus um, piece that you wrote for um, the visit of Benedict the Sixteenth mm. in or oh, what date was that? Two thousand and ten. Two thousand and ten. Could we play that um, other piece of music now? So that's triumph. That's a, that's a big bit of, I want to say, papal triumphalism, but uh, <laughs> that's too loaded a term, maybe. <laughs> well, it, it could be seen in a number of ways. I mean, there's a sense of delight in the presence in the person of Peter. Uh, which I think uh, all Christians have, and perhaps Catholics more so, or specially so, or specifically so, because uh, we do regard him as the, the first pope, and uh, and Benedict therefore comes in a kind of lineage from that. So there's a sense of delight when we sing "You Are Peter," or even pray the, the prayer from from Matthew, and I think it's to be set to music of uh, exultant joy. Uh, and when I, when Martin Baker spoke to me about the possibility of this piece, he said, "Use the organ, use the brass, use percussion." Percussion strong in there, That's isn't it? Right. That's right. There's, wow, there's it's big, shockingly uh, tam tams thunder. and gongs and uh, 
timps and uh, bass drums and tubular bells. I, I threw everything from the, from the <laughs> kitchen really sink at the piece. Did. This uh, isn't your simple congregational it's, stuff, is it's it? It's not, no. And then when we had a, a moment where the choir came in uh, with this exultant statement, you are Peter, and and with, with you uh, I build my church, or on you I build my church. And... Um, it, it's it's a moment of comfort as well, you know. We're tossed about. The church is tossed about. Always has been tossed about. It's always been in crisis. You could say, uh, getting back to Peter, that the church has been in crisis since Peter heard the cock crow. And therefore, the fact that Peter is chosen, uh, this ordinary man, this this uh, flawed human being. To be this central figure in our, not just ecclesial history, but theological history and cultural, civilizational history, is such a statement. It Steve. really is a statement, isn't it? That, that the idea that Peter is the, I mean, his, the denial, Peter's denial of Christ, which is a sort of a second conversion yeah. for Peter. It's when he sort of realizes his, you know, the, the problem with human beings and their betraying. And yet that's the basis of... Yeah. This it's a, a flawed failure of a man that is chosen for this special role in history, and that that <laughs> that gives many of us hope uh, that that we can, you know, in spite of our sinfulness and in spite of our fallenness, our incompleteness, uh, that we can rise to big things. The talk of fallenness of the church obviously makes me think a little bit of the the history of child abuse and the, the fact that that's. You know, something that's being uh, uncovered all the time at the moment, and so forth. Yeah. Um, that's that's something that must affect your the way in which you see the Catholic Church. Oh, oh, very much so. Um, there's been disillusionment after disillusionment. I mean, when it all started, probably twenty twenty five years ago, I didn't believe it. Um, I just assumed it was the church's enemies that were up to their usual tricks uh, because I'd never seen it myself. <coughs> However, we now know that this is not the case, that there has been a profound evil uh, right at the, the, the heart of the church. And I can't remember which pope talked about the uh, the, the smoke of Satan uh, actually in the church itself. And, uh, and maybe that's always been there as well. Um, perhaps... Those of us who who have decided to live with that have to be, have to recognise the reality of the situation. To be realistic, uh, perhaps that real realism, uh, and and go and and with it goes pessimism, uh, but it can be a liberating pessimism, or a liberating realism that allows us to accept the reality of the situation and try to change it. Does does any of does any of that find its way into your music? Does or is that is that too is that too specific a sort of thing? Well, I think when I set the sacred text, or even when I don't, when I'm writing abstract music that I regard as being part of this um, search for the sacred, you are writing it as someone uh, who exists in the dirt and mire of human existence. Uh, I had a very interesting conversation with John Taverner before he died and the differences between us were quite stark I love John Taverner's music but there were huge theological differences um, and attitudes to he was, an orth- he was from the orthodox tradition it's worth, it's That's worth right. saying but... I, w- I wouldn't say it was an orthodox catholic split between us but it was more to do with he saw 
music as a almost a kind of heavenly icon, yeah. Uh, yeah. a kind of sonic equivalent of what the icon was. That is a, a, a way of contemplating God, a way of accessing heaven, perhaps. And that's why his music and Arvo Pert's music, for example, yeah. music of the so-called holy minimalists, can sound so heavenly. And my music doesn't sound like that. Yours, my music yours can, is also darker. It, isn't it's it? much darker. It's it's it might have something to do with that very sense of realism, pessimism, perhaps uh, that is is necessary, and perhaps even part of the the theological journey as well. I, I always think of your work as quite actually spiritually dark, and that's quite important to me as as a place, I guess, the Holy Week place, and that we're 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 coming up to to the Easter celebrations and so forth. And you've done you've done Stations of the Cross and you've done quite a lot of Holy Week yeah. um, music. Is, is that, am I correct in thinking that that's a sort of one of the sort of grounding places for your music? It's certainly the case for my music, but actually it's been that way all through history. Artists throughout Christendom and those of those artists who have nothing to do with Christendom in, in modern times are drawn back to this story one way or another. The fact that the passion story, the passion setting, the passion uh, texts are now being set uh, by many different kinds of composers and not necessarily Christian or believing composers, it doesn't surprise me. Uh, there's something about this search of this for the sacred that all composers are, are involved in that takes us back to this profound story, uh, this violent story. Uh, and I've certainly been circling around these three days in history in very different ways. And there are there's, there are wonderful, wonderfully different ways of telling the same story over and over again. I've set two passion settings. I've set a St. John. There's a St. John passion of mine and there's a St. Luke passion of mine. I want to write the, uh, uh, Matthew and a Mark as well, uh, if, if I'm spared. But then there's the seven last words from the cross. What a wonderful kind of uh, redundant but paraliturgical form uh, of telling the story of Christ, looking at the words that Christ is meant to have spoken from the cross. And, and, and Haydn, of course, comes to mind as the great composer from the past who reflected on these words with music. That's another form that's alive to us and available. I've used that. I've set the Stabat Mater recently, uh, seeing the crucifixion of Christ through his mother's eyes. And that's a, a profound journey as well. Um, uh, and and of course that that touches people uh, who are not necessarily believers or Christians who have lost children, uh, who have uh, seen their children die in the Mediterranean, uh, f fleeing war and famine, and and therefore uh, the the Christian story is. Is is available for all. The the Christian the story of Christ's death and resurrection is available for all. It's there for the non Christian, the non believer, just as it's there for the the saint and the sinner, and uh, and that's why I think that when I I write these very Christian uh, things, uh, pieces of music, uh, it's cognizant of the fact that lovers of music know where it's coming from. Uh, and appreciate where it's coming from, whether they accept it or not. And I, I'm happy in those secular places with those secular friends who are also music lovers who embrace um, the, the, the full panoply of the Christian story, but from a very different perspective from but the, mine. But the Christian story, the, 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 the Holy Week story, also includes, I mean, it includes um, 
a sense of abandonment, a sense of, uh, of, of, I mean, I always think Holy Saturday is the day for atheists. I mean, you know, there's a sort of like, the, the, there is a point in this which is everything is lost. There is, there is complete, uh, and you, your, your work just articulates for me so powerfully that sense of um, abandonment and loss. Mm. And that's a journey that we all have to go through, and you must have to go through that. In order to write that sort of music, I just imagine that I can't imagine the journeys you have to go well, through, James. Uh, it's something you, you live with, and every artist has has their own coping strategy. Um, I don't want to make it too dramatic. I mean, there's there's a side of me getting back to uh, my, my dad and the artisan in all of us that um, has to be objective about these things. You know, I'm looking at a piece of music and how it works structurally, how the harmony works, how the counterpoint works. So that's works. the craft side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. it allows you to stay, take a step back and get the get the the basics to work, get the abstract nature of music to work. And that uh, that stops me from becoming too emotionally involved. I'm not saying I, I'm emotionally distant. I, I'm fully involved in, in, in every sense. But um, the the abstract nature of music allows you to step that to, to, to take a step back and, and look at the the work that has been created and to and and to make it work otherwise uh, the, the emotion would collapse in in itself and destroy the work become sentimentality yep. or, yeah, yeah and that's and it would destroy the structure if it's all heart and sleeve if the music was heart and sleeve with no controlling uh, fundamental abstract um, thrust it would be no good to composer or listener you're, if you forgive me for saying so, you're a little bit like that as a as a person because you're you you have you, you clearly have passion and emotion in your words, but they are you you say them with a certain reserve. That's uh, and there's that, but funnily enough, it makes it more passionate. <laughs> well, uh, it might be the the door Scott. Uh, yeah. uh, it comes in handy sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> what was the first What was the first thing you played? Do you remember your first instrument? Yes. Um, I I started music when Miss Gray, uh, the the teacher at St John's Primary School in Cumnock, where I'm from, brought in a batch of plastic recorders. Now I realise that for most British school children, that's not the seismic event. Well, like a penny whistle me. type of thing. Yeah, uh, yes, a proper I mean, recorder. A proper recorder, okay, right. uh, but plastic, so cheap. Ferrer or something uh, like that. You play. I think on that it, yeah. might have been my first piece. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but the thing for me was that as soon as I was given that recorder, a, a light went on. And I want. I knew I wanted to write music, create music, create my own music, as well as just play it. And I moved on to other instruments like the cornet and the trumpet and the piano, and I sang as well. But the light went on then. I knew that I wanted to create my own melodies, and I was writing music very quickly after that. So it it, it was a, a, a sort of. A, a sort of lightning moment for me uh, when Miss Gray <laughs> came in with the recorders that day. That's extraordinary. You you um you compose you you compose, but you also conduct, don't mm -hmm. you? Mm -hmm. Is it a are you the best interpreter of your own music, or is that how does how does that relationship work? I'm fascinated by that. Uh, it works differently for everyone else, but you're probably aware that there was historically a division between the two skills in the 20th century up until. Wagner, Mahler, I suppose, 
composers conducted all the time. Richard Strauss was a brilliant conductor. But then, for some reason, composers went one way and conductors went the other. Two different specialisms. And um, But it's beginning to change back, and I'm beginning to notice there are a number of us who love doing this. Thomas Addis uh, conducts. George Benjamin conducts. John Adams conducts. Uh, Oliver Nusson conducts. He was a brilliant conductor as well as a composer. Um I love it because I've never lost that delight in public performance and standing up in front of an audience and performing one way or another. Uh, it gets me out with my fellow musicians in a very practical, hands-on way. It gets me out of the house, <laughs> <laughs> to put it as bluntly as that, because, as you know, composing can be a very solitary existence. See, yes. I miss the company. Uh, and co conducting gets me out there working with my fellow musicians in a, a very... Uh, a, a very happy way. The, the act of the actual creative act of 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 writing music. Um, do you have a do you have a sort of a liturgy? Do you have a sort of like a um, you know you get up in the morning, you have your cup of coffee there, you have your you, do you have headphones on? Do you like do, do you do it in a particular sort of way, or does it, it does it have to be the muse that strikes? Every day is different okay. for me. I wish there was. I wish I was as planned and organised as that, but I'm not. Uh, but it does make uh, life interesting in that, in that you're not really sure what the day is going to bring. I have m most days available to me to write. It's up to me to find the right way of filling those days fruitfully. Uh, and But, but uh, every day I'm at a, a, a different stage of a piece. So I could be right at the beginning of a piece where there's nothing going on in my head at all. How do you cope with that? The, not just the blank page, but the blank brain, uh, the empty soul. Uh, it can be quite a, a, a frightening time. Yeah. But then as things begin to proliferate and build, uh, you get into it, it can feel like knitting. Sometimes you're sort of knit, knitting the material, making it work, and that can be very exciting. Can you hear it in your head, as it were, when you're writing it? I think so, yes. I think composers have got to be able to have that imagination at work it's a different it is different from hearing live sound but the analogy I, I, I like to use here is to, to show what it means or what it's like is is the difference between uh, you know there's old black and white prints of photographs before uh, mobile phones and so on we used to have to take our black and white negatives to the chemists yeah. to get them transformed into pictures well mm. what's going on in my head is a bit like that black and white negative uh, and then when you get the 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 photographs back from the chemists, there it is in all its full technicolour, and that's what the first perf performance of first rehearsal was like. That must be extraordinary to listen to to something that you've done that you have a sort of an idea what it's going to sound like, and then to have a full orchestra, mm. blimey, doing what you've just written in your study. <laughs> it never ceases to be a thrill. It, it's a wonderful moment, frightening, but uh, yeah. <laughs> James, we're, we're just about to come into Holy Week um, and uh, there'll be listeners to this who uh, I'd, I'd love to... What, what should people... What do you think people should be listening to during Holy Week? There are, have, you got some, have you got some suggestions for people? For, yes. Uh, um, let's be ecumenical about this. Um, as well as the Bach Passions, which are of, of the, some of the most wonderful artistic creations a human being has ever made. So let's start with the, the St. Matthew of the St. John Passion. But also remember that there, there, were, there were hundreds of years before back where composers were telling the same story in different ways. So, for example, what about the Responsories for Tenebrae uh, written by those composers of a, an earlier 
generation and earlier era, like Victoria, who, who I think is you know, one of the great figures in the post-Palestrina age, a, a Spanish priest of the Counter-Reformation who wrote this agonised music, very Spanish, very Catholic, uh, that would be sung during these uh, wonderful services of Tenebrae when the, the candles started going out and... and and the, the worshippers and the listeners, in fact, would be confronted with the dark night of the soul. Uh, go there. If you want something even more colourful than um, Victoria, go to Gesualdo, Carlo Gesualdo. His settings of the Tenebrae Responsories, I'm conducting them soon with the BBC Singers at a, f a festival of uh, uh, Holy Week music at St John Smith Square during Holy Week. Uh, come along. If 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 you're around, but this is music that is that paints pictures in an astonishing, almost cinematic way. It's um, it's mu music that is not just colourful but uh, uh, bloody, right. if you like. It, it's right. it's astonishing music from again a bit later in the Counter Reformation, but I would go to Victoria Gesualdo and. Uh, uh, for Protestant sanity, GS Bach. <laughs> James McMillan, thank you very much yeah. indeed. Thank Happy you Easter, much. my thank friend. You. All the best. Thank you for listening to this episode of Confessions with me, Giles Fraser. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate and review it and do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be joined by another guest next week for another episode of Soul Bearing and I do hope you'll tune in then. And do check out the website, unheard.com.